0: Sprinting back there, I'll take it. There can only be one king of the Thunderdome, and so, he who gets there first wins. So, hey, if you have your Bibles, let's open them up to Luke chapter 6. Uh, Luke chapter 6. I, I told you uh, last week we were we were coming to the end of an, of an arc of sorts uh, in our journey through the gospel of Luke. And and so for the past uh, few weeks, really few months, we've been following the footsteps of Jesus as he as he opens chapter four with a, a, a proclamation that that he says you know he says he says I've I've been sent to proclaim good news to the poor and and I've been sent to give liberty to the captives and and to the recovering of sight to the blind and and setting at liberty those who are oppressed and and really just proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And then from there, uh, we walked with him as he, as he teaches and he heals those who are afflicted and he exercises demons. And then, and then these past few weeks specifically have been really the result of, um, of paying attention to a few scenes where, where Jesus has engaged in conversations with uh, the Pharisees and the scribes about his pursuit uh, really just to call sinners to repentance. Uh, and now when when we hear that, we have this kind of a natural inclination to be like, what, he's calling me a sinner? And he's like, yes. And you realizing that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness and, and needing to walk in repentance is actually the best news you will hear because, again, he's come to set the captives in freedom, uh, at liberty. And and so it's, it's from this statement and, and really from his willingness to, uh, to, to spend time with those the Pharisees believed to be unworthy and, and really untouchable, that they begin this season of of stalking Jesus. and But not in the good way, not like a romantic comedy kind of way. Uh, they start to stalk him uh, in a way so that they can maybe catch him doing something that they can charge him with, uh, so that they can discredit him, and, and they, they bring to him... Uh, really questions about fasting and, and the activities surrounding the Sabbath that they believe put him in violation of, of their laws. And, and Jesus pretty much just explains uh, how, how, firstly, his presence is, is cause for celebration, uh, and then how uh, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then uh, last week we saw how uh, he says pretty much, hey, it's always the right time to do an act of mercy. Uh, It is always you're never pitted against that based on uh, the time or the day. And and so so this arc really it kind of comes to an end with with verse 11. And then uh, beginning in verse 12, a new arc kind of kind of begins. And and what happens now is a focus uh, through really the remainder of this chapter in a a sermon that that Jesus gives. And and there's belief uh, that this sermon um, could be the same one that we find in Matthew's 5-7, through 7, which is famously called the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, or this could be a, a separate sermon with just similar lesson points, because that's a good old pastoral trick, you know, um, that if you change your audience, you can still teach the same lesson from last week. And so, um, but either way, what we find here in, in Jesus' teaching is, i believe is encouraging and it's challenging and it's it's transformative uh when we put those principles into practice and and the main idea throughout is that um is that people will hear what jesus say and they'll be amazed at what he says and the danger is that they would walk away saying you know jesus is a good and he is a moral teacher um and, and really what we know is that, uh, yes, he is a good moral teacher, yet that means more than we can really imagine or, or think. And so so when, when I say that Jesus was a good moral teacher, uh, many people will believe that about him, even if they don't believe he's the Son of God, even if they don't believe he is God, even if they don't believe he is the Word that was with God in the beginning. And uh, and I think he, even an unbeliever will attempt to hold A Christian accountable when they believe that they're not living up to the teachings of Jesus Uh, in fact that's that's one of when we when we hear the word hypocrite uh, that's typically what it's built around like hey you claim to be living this way but yet your actions are leading you to live in a, a different manner now sometimes that that title is warranted and sometimes it's just sent as as a shot fired and and so so uh, have you ever have you ever had a, a conversation with a person um, who who claimed that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but they almost never go on to talk about his moral teachings uh, and and so so the phrase has this way when we talk about Jesus being a good moral teacher, this phrase has this way of, of simultaneously communicating an appreciation for Jesus, but at the same time. Lowering the Christian estimation of, of who he is uh, in fact uh, many will say Jesus was a great moral teacher as a way of, of compartmentalizing his influence in in mankind's story because he comes as something much larger than just a teacher uh, and and typically the Christian counter to that is is an assertion in how he he is much more than just that in fact we 've been trying to build out this argument um, for the past few months that that jesus is he's, he's more than a healer he 's more than a teacher he's more than um, really just a good rabbi or a good pastor uh, he is the sum total of those things, but even more he is the savior of the world he is our messiah and uh, in, in his book mere christianity uh c s Lewis uh, argues that that jesus is is really either three things uh, he 's either He's either a, uh, a liar, or, or a lunatic, or he's Lord. Uh, he's, he's one of those three things. He can't simply be a good and a moral teacher. In fact, Lewis uh, took this position because of what Jesus teaches. That, that that any man who claims to be the Savior of the world, which Jesus does, right? Any man who claims to be the Savior of the world, but but knows that he is not, uh, in fact, a Savior, he's um, is, is not... A good teacher, he's a liar, uh, and that further the the lies that he tells are demonic and leads people to hell. And so so and then, if any man says that he's the savior of the world and and really believes it but can't fulfill that, then he's crazy. He is. It'd be it'd be like, oh no, that's awkward, right? Yeah, everybody watch a man to get this piece of paper. Oh man, so awkward. Oh, we'll never forget that moment. Um. So so if he comes in and he says, hey guys, I'm, uh, he, he could say, I'm the savior of the world, or he could say, I'm Big Bird, right? And if he's not that thing, then then he's simply crazy, and in fact, Lewis will, will say that his choice of term is a lunatic, and so, but, but, if Jesus is telling the truth about himself, which is what we believe, and if he's telling the truth about how we are saved, then then he's not a liar, and he's not a lunatic, then then the, the only other option left to us is, is he is the Lord, that he is those things. In fact, um, C.S. Lewis argued that these are really the only three options available. And so, so if Jesus was telling the truth, then his good and moral teaching cannot simply be acknowledged with the tip of the cap or um, a, a random posting on, on social media that has a verse of the day. Uh, that, that, that his teaching actually has to be, and I know this is going to be a novel idea for some of us, his teaching actually has to be studied. Uh, and then it has to be accepted. And then, thirdly, it has to be applied. I mean, think about it. Um, what what good moral teacher um, should have their good moral teaching ignored? I mean, because shouldn't, shouldn't good moral teaching be embraced and followed by everyone? Especially those who think of themselves as good and moral people. That's that's kind of where we're at. Rarely do you find the person who's like, yeah, I'm not moral. I'm not even good. And so, so today's good and moral people tend to believe at least four things that Jesus will address in the remaining verses of, of chapter 6. Uh, that firstly, uh, they believe that, that poverty is is really a sin to be avoided, right? Uh, and that riches are the goal of life. That number two, that, that love is the greatest virtue and it justifies all of our desires. And then number three, you, you cannot judge someone else, ever, period. Can't do it, not allowed to. And then four, there are many ways to, to serve God and all of them are equally valid, um, and, and that's an, it's an interesting list of moral claims, because really uh, most everyone takes these principles to be basically true and And when we consider the, the good moral teaching of Jesus, uh, what we find is is we find ourselves face to face with uh, a way of being good unlike anything in this world. Uh, we, we find ourselves face to face with with goodness itself And so, so we come face to face with morality as God defines it and we actually come face to face with our need for someone to rescue us from the demands of our societal goodness. Uh, and in fact, uh, the British writer J, uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, once wrote that the Christian ideal uh, has not been tried and found wanting, uh, it's been found difficult and left untried. Because what we're going to find Jesus saying is things that are very countercultural to the way that, that we, maybe we've even grown up in the church. Uh, because he said, hey, your perspective on these things is different when you are walking with me. And so, so what happens is, is Luke uh, 6 12 through 49 features really these, these four teachings that Jesus challenges our notions of, of goodness, of what is good. In fact, uh, four teachings that defy uh, commonly accepted virtues of, of our of our culture, and we're going to take on one on uh, each week over the next couple of weeks. And so, so let, let me let me kind of leapfrog us through a couple of verses though. Uh, from uh, verses 12 through 19, kind of sets the scene. Okay, we're not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you what they are. Uh, in, in 12 through 16, uh, Jesus holds an all night prayer vigil. Uh, he goes to the top of a mountain. And he begins to pray by himself, uh, and his prayer is in order to identify who among his disciples should be his closest ones. Uh, in fact, we, we call them apostles. Um, and so, so, so the apostle is just really someone who is sent with a message. And, and the 12 men listed in verses 14 through 16 uh, would be his chief messengers. Uh, of, of our Lord. In fact, 11 of them will be the leaders of the early Christian church, and, uh, and we, we've heard of some of them, and we'll continue to learn about them as we walk through uh, Luke's gospel. And now uh, what happens is, is, in verse 17, it tells us that, that Jesus came down with his apostles to a meeting of a large crowd of his disciples, just his followers, people who were like, hey, I'm on board with this guy. Okay, and so so there's a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people for all over, from all over the region, and they came to hear him teach, uh, but and, and to be healed of their diseases. And so so Jesus uh, did indeed heal people with unclean spirits, and it says that that power came out from him and healed them all. And and what Luke wants us to understand it is not the miracle of the healing, because he really only gives one sentence to that. Uh, but, but what he wants us to do is pay attention to Jesus' words and his teaching, which cover the rest of this chapter. He draws our attention to how Jesus' mind works regarding, really, morality. And so he starts with this in verse 20, and this is where you can follow along in your Bible. Luke 6, verse 20. And he, being Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, okay, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spur your, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. But he says this, Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, and behold, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Okay, so, so which sounds very strange. Like, God, why, Jesus, why would I want to respond with these things? Why would I want to rejoice and leap for joy in the hardships of my life? Specifically when people speak ill about me, when, when people hate me, when they exclude me, uh, when they spurn my name and drag it through the mud. Why would I do that? And he's going to explain it. Because what we find in verse 20, Jesus speaks to his disciples, which... Which is simply again it means just a follower, right and he wants them to understand what life is like for those who follow him so so there are not so these are not thoughts to be shared with with every person in every circumstance uh, because th- those are out those who are outside the fold would have a completely different experience with these circumstances. but he looks and he says, "If you follow me." here's how you encounter and embrace and work through these difficult seasons of your life. So, so the, word, the word blessed is repeated four times in verses 20 through 22. Uh, and, and really, uh, a good translation of that word blessed uh, is, is happy. The ha- happy are you. And, and I think in our current Christian culture, uh, we have a strange relationship when we when we use that word "blessed" because I think sometimes uh, to the point that I, that I wonder if we even understand the word or or the reason that we can consider ourselves blessed. Because because in short, we are blessed. And here's what you need to know, okay? And this is what Jesus will teach you: is that that we are blessed because we are known by God through Jesus. That's it. We are blessed because God knows us. Through Jesus. And I think there's a very dangerous theology out there that wants to attach blessing with these additional circumstances or, or additional opportunities. And I think this is dangerous because because it can create situations where where the stuff is valued higher than the presence of Jesus. And this is what he will say that that when you follow me, you will be blessed, no matter where you are no matter what the circumstance is, no matter, no matter if you can keep up with the Joneses or if the Joneses are trying to keep up with you. You can live in a blessed way without any of the stuff. In fact, I think he would say, you can live a blessed life without any of the trappings of what we consider success. So, so, so Jesus describes the happy or the joyful life from a kingdom perspective. And notice, notice whom he describes as happy. He says, he says the poor are blessed. He says those who are hungry now are blessed. Those who weep now are blessed. Those who are hated and excluded and insulted and slandered. So, so the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated, we, when we follow Jesus, we find ourselves, in, and find ourselves in those conditions. Because we follow him, he says there's a happiness available to you. He says, you are blessed from God's perspective. And the question is, well, why and how? And verse, verse 20 tells us, at the end of verse 20, it says, it says, the kingdom of God is whose? Yours. The kingdom of God is yours. You are blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. And we could just stop there and walk away today and just chew on that. Now, what does it look like to walk in the kingdom of God when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is now, and it's here. So, so we may be be poor, and now, and I get there's there's a separation we need to make here because most of us um, who would even remotely consider ourselves poor are not poor when it comes to the rest of the world. Okay. But we may be poor, and with no earthly kingdom, but the heavenly kingdom filled with glory belongs to those who follow. Jesus, the, the kingdoms of this earth pass away, but the kingdom of God remains forever. Not, o- not only that, but but our hunger now. This is what he says: our hunger now will be traded for complete satisfaction. Our weeping now will be traded for laughter. And, and so so when when Matthew uh, records this his version of the beatitudes, which is what this is, um, he emphasizes them in a spiritual way that Luke doesn't. Uh, that that Matthew writes. Uh, the poor in spirit, and and those who hunger and and thirst for righteousness. Uh, But Luke leaves that out, and I don't know why, um, but perhaps maybe just, uh, uh, he maybe wants us to think through this in a seemingly more literal translation, a more literal meaning, that Luke gives us the sense of the temporariness, if that's a word, Um, he gives us the sense of the temporariness of, of poverty and hunger and weeping, that it doesn't last forever. In fact, he says, he says, those who follow me will have a kingdom at their disposal. So he says, these things happen now. That, that such temporal poverty and hunger and thirst will barely be a memory in the kingdom of God. That all of our longing and hunger and poverty will be uh, satiated uh, with laughter and joy in the presence of God. And, and when people hate and exclude and insult and slander the disciple because of the Son of Man, then our, rejoices reaches, our rejoicing reaches its highest level. But not in some lunatic kind of way that, that we understand why. We are being embraced in, with such a way that that when we suffer for our Savior's name, we receive uh, what what Jesus says is a prophet's treatment, and we receive a prophet's great reward that Jesus does not use these adjectives um, frivolously so so how does how does the Lord of heaven define great right how much reward will eternity provide in exchange for for earth's sorrows. It, it's not what the world teaches us to expect, but, but this is the path to being happy. <laughs> this is the path to being blessed, and, and the, the people Jesus is teaching to, both both then and now, I think, will face some of the greatest persecution known to mankind. In fact, uh, here in America, we, we've never experienced the persecution that much of the Christian church has experienced and, and are experiencing across the world, okay? Uh, we've never done that. And, and now sometimes I, I wonder uh, if if that's the blessing of God and the protection of God or or if that's just the result that the church in, in America is pretty weak and pretty apathetic, uh, that, that Satan looks at a lot of us and says, I ain't worried about you. I ain't. Now I wonder if, if, if the enemy looks at our lukewarm approach to spiritual worship, and then as we try to celebrate being lukewarm, if he says, "I you know, we'll just leave them to their own selves, they're not doing much. So I think, I think many of these people that Jesus is speaking to, literally, the people that he is speaking to in that moment, they will experience the poverty and the hunger and the mourning and the slander for simply associating with one another because of their belief in Jesus. They will. In fact, they will be scattered. They will disperse throughout their countries. They will they will be homeless because to be caught would bring an end to their lives. And and when Jesus says blessed, he's bringing a perspective tonight that people lay awake in fear that their doors will be busted down because they believe Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's all it is. And, and, and I hope you would realize, in the comfort of our own home, right, as we lie awake at night, the things that we think about that Jesus will say is very temporal and really doesn't matter, that he says, this is the path to blessing. That when you lie awake at night and you say, are they coming for me today? Because I say I love Jesus. He says, that's where you know you're in the right, you're in the right lane. So when Jesus says bless, he's bringing this perspective to these nights that you lay awake. And, and I think this is why Jesus next will, will contrast blessings with, with the pronouncing of, of four woes. Okay, So, so we start in, in verse 24. So, so he said these things, and now he's going to say the opposite of these things. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so, so in the Bible, when, when a prophet warns people of condemnation, he would often begin with the word woe. And what it, what it was intended to do was, was initially shock Right? Uh, but then secondly, uh, prepare their hearts for, for what happens next, because the word "woe" refers to this unrelenting sorrow and pain and agony uh, and, and the kind that, that cannot be relieved. It's like this is, this, is the, this is a warning to the highest degree. can be avoided. But if you don't, what follows is, is pain. And so when, when a prophet pronounces a woe against people, it really the woe comes at the hand of, of God's judgment and God's condemnation. And so Jesus says, woe comes to the rich and the full now and those laughing now and those who are popular in the world now. And, and, and these people appear to enjoy all that life has to offer, which, which is careful, right? We've got to be careful here. Because we're like, well, I kind of want to enjoy all that life has to offer. Okay. So these people have, get to, are enjoying all that life has to offer, but there's no mention of the Lord in their life, none whatsoever. And so, so we' verse 22, Jesus says, uh, "Some disciples suffer in this world because of the Son of Man, the rich and the fool and the laughing and the popular that he's describing here do not suffer in the world because there is no mention of the Son of Man." And so, so they live it up without Jesus. And this is what Jesus compassionately proclaims here. It's, an end re- it's a dead-end road. That at the end of that road is doom. It says, the rich have received, so in the past tense, their comfort. Uh, their comfort was, was their money. And so when their, life, when their lives end and their money's gone, there will be no comfort for them. They, they will outlive their money and their money will outlive it's usefulness. And, and all that would be left apart from Jesus is doom. It says that the, the now full live high on the hog, right? They satisfy their desires now. And they, they have refrigerators full. And they have money to go out to eat, right? Uh, but, but when judgment comes, they will be hungry. For them there there awaits a constant hunger which can which will never be satisfied. He says those who are laughing now will not laugh last, right they, they, they will mourn and they will weep as verse twenty five tells us in fact, many places in the Bible describe judgment and, and hell as as the weeping and the gnashing of of teeth i don 't even know how you gnash teeth, uh, but it does not sound comfortable so so in the end, they will be. Sorry they spent their lives laughing in worldly pleasures, apart from Jesus. And then lastly, he says, he says, the popular, those those who knew what it meant to have all people speak well of you will suffer woe too. That, that many people in Israel's history, they loved false teachers. In fact, Paul will warn, uh, I think it's in 2 Timothy, he'll warn Timothy and he'll warn the Christians who are reading the letter, hey man... Be mindful of who you let teach. Because he says there's a time when people will will only listen to the guys who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And then they will ignore and walk away from sound doctrine. And so what what we deal with today, they dealt with then. So Which is why we always want to come back and say, okay, What's the posture of our teaching here? We want to be right behind the Bible. And then when there's something that's said from this pulpit, right, uh, that, that contradicts the word, that needs to be exposed and that needs to be moved along. So this is why we try to do teaching the way that we do because we don't want to be cowards of that. But we also want to understand when Jesus comes in and he says, Hey, listen, if this is the makeup of your life, it leads in destruction. So, so, so the Bible tells us that, uh, and I, I think. Uh, let, let me say this because I, I want to be, I want to make sure I, I, I'm clear about this, and I probably won't be, but I got the mic, and I'll stop talking eventually. So, so when it comes to popularity, um, I, I think we need to make a distinction because it's it's one thing. For the Christian to be rejected by an unbelieving world because they are just ill-mannered and offensive. All right? You you realize we don't we don't have to go pick fights. The enemy will bring them to you. So so the Bible tells us that we are to be a people, and, and one of one of my most defining verses I find in the Bible, simply First Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. So we're we're called to do everything. And, love. and the Bible will further teach us that we are to be a people who seek to be at peace with all men. And to be the salt of the earth, and to be kind and generous and friendly. And, and we do those things um, uh, so that people can see the difference that Jesus is making in our lives. We, that's why we do this. But, but loyalty to Christ and devotion to Him will inevitably uh, bring some experience of the reproach of men. This is what the Bible teaches. That, that Christ promises that, that those who bore his name and who embraced his values would indeed suffer the same kind of, of humiliation and despising of men that was a normal part of, of his own existence. He'll tell his disciples, hey, they're coming after you, but don't worry about it because it's only because they came after me. I heard, I heard a guy once, I was at a conference, in fact this was back in, uh, 2007. Uh, it was, it was, I was at a conference that, um, in it, there were there were three different things said that ultimately led us to feeling God was calling us to plant a church. Uh, and, and one of them was a panel interview, and uh, there was a guy on it. His name was Chris C. And they had just come out with a book, and they were talking about um, some research numbers, which was really boring to me uh, about why the why the world doesn't like the church. Uh, and, and he said something that I, I found to be very clarifying for my own heart. Because he says, you know, it, it's strange when when the world looks at the church and says, you know, I, I, we think they're narrow-minded, we think they're judgmental, and we think they're unloving. And he, he, he goes on and he says, he goes, you know, what's strange is that Jesus says, hey, they will hate you for your righteousness. Because, because the ways of the Lord is foolishness to the rest of the world. He says, they'll hate you for your righteousness. And he goes, but the, the, the issue with, the, with where we're at in our nation now is that we're not hated for righteousness, we're hated for self-righteousness. And so, so Jesus comes along and he says, listen, when they hate you, make sure it's for the right thing. Make sure it's because of your holiness. Make sure it's because of your allegiance to me, not because you're abrasive and you're you're picking fights. So make sure that it's for your righteousness, not your self-righteousness. And so let's go back a bit, and let's let's see how the blessed or the happy life is really, honestly, it's the opposite of what most people think. That that there is greater, longer-lasting happiness with Jesus plus nothing else than everything minus Jesus. You with? That the happiness of everything minus Jesus is very temporary, and the joy of Jesus plus nothing is eternal. That's why he's our great reward. It's why we can sing, like we did earlier, I just want you. I don't need you and any of the other things. And I I wonder how many of us go to Jesus so that we can get the other things. Or we can hold Jesus accountable, saying, hey, wait, 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 wait. I'm following you. I thought there was going to be more swag at the end of this. Because that's what he offers himself. So this great moral teacher curses what the world thinks is good and blesses what the world thinks is bad, right? I mean, that's what we typically think. Like, hey, being poor, not good. Being hungry, not good. Right? Being ridiculed, not good. And he says, he says, nope. He goes, I, I want you to see this from a different perspective, and, which kind of leads us to a question. With, with views that are, that are so opposing, right? Someone has to be right. Right? This, isn't, this isn't one of those cases where you're like, well, I think both of you have a valid point and, and you can both be equally right. No, you can't. And this is what Jesus pits us against. He's like, he's like either I'm right or the world's right. And I think that's what we have to wrestle with because I think the challenge with answering that question is it's exposing. Because if you say, okay, well, I think the world has a point here, then you get exposed. And you say, well, I think Jesus is right, and then your heart gets exposed. This this passage is on a collision course with the values of our culture. It is. In fact, if if Jesus were to stand here today, which I think in many ways he is, since since we have his Spirit and we have his Word, right, he would be asking us what our value systems are. What what are we putting our confidence in? Where are our hearts? Because there is a relationship between our hearts. And our treasures. You with? There's a relationship between our hearts and, and our, our treasures. And so Jesus is saying that our hearts should be fixed on those things that cannot be destroyed or stolen. That our, that our hearts should be, uh, they should be fixed on those things of abiding and eternal value that no one can take from us because they're sealed in Him. So So Jesus in, seems to envision a trade-off that's what he does on, on, on one hand, you can choose him and you can choose the hardships of life that sometimes come with him, and we, we uh, can receive an ultimate reward and glory or, or you can choose a life without him in the pursuit of an earthly life of of pleasure, which ultimately leads to suffering and woe. And so the Lord teaches in, in spiritual terms. And really, what it the whole thing is? It's the concept of delayed gratification and instant gratification. That's what it is. And now, what, what I love about that is is anytime we have the conversation about delayed gratification, we want to think that that instant gratification, delayed gratification. Well, I like I like to microwave my life, so I like it sooner. And what Jesus is bringing us here to an awareness of is that we can live a life of blessing and happiness in the midst of these circumstances. Again, it's not that he's saying, hey, just deal with it, deal with it, deal with it, and it'll get better one day. He's not doing that. Although that's true. He's saying, I I want you to be able to experience happiness in the midst of your poverty. In the midst of your hunger. In the midst of your pain. And I think he, he does this because Jesus doesn't value what people value. He values himself above all things. He values Himself, and he blesses those who do the same, and and the Lord teaches this repeatedly. In fact, uh, he'll ask he'll he'll ask us some questions, and we'll get there uh, here in in uh, probably a couple months. Um, he'll pose this question. He'll say he'll say, "For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself?" That's that's Luke nine twenty five, that he says he says you you know your one soul possesses infinitely more value than everything in this world combined. The value of the soul is kept when the soul is given to Christ. Or when Jesus says warnings like this from Luke 12 that that says, Watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. That abundant possessions do not determine the quality of, of our lives. Uh, in fact, abundant, an abundant life comes not from things, but from Jesus. And or we can consider Luke eighteen twenty-five, that when Jesus says, "Hey, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of of God." And so, so the way the world values money and things is ultimately soul destroying. And now, I'm not I'm not knocking you for wanting to have a nice TV. or or to drive a nice car, or to live in a nice house. I'm not not knocking any of that. But if that's the pursuit of our lives, Jesus says, hey, you're lining up from a blessing to a woe. That's that's what he's saying. Because the abundance of our life doesn't come from our stuff. And Jesus repeatedly uh, will, will teach about the dangers of riches. Luke 6 presents In exchange, that that follow Jesus and and, and suffer now, uh, only to be rewarded greatly later. Or, don't follow Jesus, seek pleasure now, only to suffer the well. And this is is what I love about it. Because there's no guarantees that you're going to, even if you you decide to do life without Jesus, there's no guarantee that you're going to be well-fed. There's no guarantee you're going to hit, you know, TikTok money. Right? So hear me when I say this. Being rich and having food in your stomach and laughing and being well-liked, it, it's not sinful. It isn't. That's not what these verses are teaching. What they're teaching is, is something important about the pursuits of our lives. Because Jesus is teaching us how to count the cost of following Him. Because here's, here's what I know. I've been, I've, been, I've been doing this for a long time, it feels like. And the number of people I've sat down with who have said, I'm walking away from Jesus because he didn't do what I expected him to do. Or he didn't do what I wanted him to do. It's sad. It is. It's tragic. Because we'll develop an idea that every day with Jesus is just greater than the day before and that's 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 true in part but not true in entirety because there are hard days there are hard seasons some of us have been living in hard years so so what we're learning is that Jesus isn't a liar here he very clearly tells us hey when you do life according to my standard when you do life according to the proclamation of my name. And your, your life is the, your, what you do and what you say is the anthem of me. It'll be hard. It'll be hard at times. So he never, he never baits and switches us. He's telling us, how, this is how you count the cost of following him because it will be possible to find yourself without these factors that we're tempted to, be, to consider our signs of blessing and think that we're on the wrong path. Right? Have you ever had a hard moment in life and you said, well clearly God's I'm not on the right road. Because what I expected Jesus to do was take me on the freeway and now I'm on this gravel pit. And what happens is typically we, we try to curse God and our devotion lacks and, and what's, what's being set up here is 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 the war that hell wages against the heart of a man when Jesus is the king of that heart. That's what he's saying. When, when Jesus is the king of your heart, all hell wants to break loose against that. All the time. So when you find yourself in those moments, what Jesus is saying is, hey, you can rejoice in those moments. You can find happiness in those moments, you can. Because Jesus wants us prepared with the correct perspective so that we can see deeper than these lesser pursuits, which can trip us up so easily. The story of your life doesn't end with you. It doesn't. If you're in Christ, the story of your life ends with Him. So that's that's where we go. And I don't I don't know, I don't know how you take that. Like, I've struggled this week of like, okay, we're really not poor, right? I mean, we, some of us are going through some stuff, and it's hard stuff, and it's life altering stuff, but then some of us are just babies, and we're whining because we got hangnails, right? Where are you, God? You know, the Mavericks really need to pick up game seven. If you're there listening, no, it's, it's nothingness, it doesn't matter. So, so I, my prayer for us is that we would take a good hard look at the balance of these eight statements. And that we would ask him, how do I respond? What, what's, what's my posture? What's my thinking? What's, what's my theology when it comes to these eight thoughts? Because he's given us a great warning and he's showing us a path to freedom. He is. Now, I, I guess the question begs, like I said earlier, who's right? Either, either Jesus is right or the world's right. Okay? Now, here in, in my heart, I've resolved that he's always right, regardless, because the world, the world keeps switching on me. It keeps changing what is good and what is right. So when Christ comes in and he says, I am, this is the way, my heart just wants to get behind that. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. All right. As we wrap up, I'm going to make a couple things available to you and then I'm going to pray us out. Uh, if you need prayer today, we, we, there will be some people over here on this side. Um, and if there's nobody on that side, just look spiritual and act like you're praying. Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, there will be some people over there. They wanna, we want to pray with you. Um, may, maybe you are going through some stuff. Uh, we want to help share that burden with you. Uh, Maybe you've never asked Jesus into your heart. Uh, We believe there's no way to have a right and lasting relationship with Jesus apart from, apart from, uh, I'm sorry, a right relationship with God apart from Jesus. And so, let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you walk um, and you speak loudly through your word to us. I pray that we would be the kind of people who, who would not try to entertain the, the thought of who's most right here. Because you have shown us the path. So Father, for us who, who need to walk in repentance, I pray we would repent. For those who need to be walking in freedom, I pray we would walk in that freedom. And at the end of the day, when when it comes to the reputation of our church, that we would understand that it's our reputations individually that make the loudest noise. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.